now plugged in to the Delphi Podcast. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Delphi Podcast. I'm Tom Shaughnessy, and I help lead Delphi Ventures, as well as host some of the most in-the-weeds and thought-provoking guests across crypto, spanning Layer 1s to DeFi, NFTs, and beyond. The goal is to have fun, but also to dive deep and offer foundational episodes on projects and founders. Also, check out our research on Delphi Digital or miss out on the most compelling research there is. It's up to you. As a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Delphi Ventures may hold tokens mentioned, so check out our transparency page in the show notes for more info. With that, let's dive in. See you guys on the other side. And welcome back to another Delphi podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Perez. Today, I have a very special guest with us. I've been really looking forward to talking to Glenn. Uh, Glenn, before we dive into SBTs and a lot of the great work you've been doing surrounding them, I'd love to introduce the audience to um, you, what you've done in the past, what you're working on now. Um, yeah, I would love, love to hear from you, sir. Yeah, that's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Jeremy. I have a background as an economist. I was a professor at the University of Chicago. And uh, then I went into the tech industry kind of by accident. Um, and even more by accident, ended up in the Web3 world. I wrote a book with Eric Posner called Radical Markets that was kind of a, give some radical solutions to restructuring how our you know, economy works using digital tools. And uh, it wasn't an enormous commercial success, but within the Web3 world, it ended up sort of taking off. And I became really good friends with Vitalik Buterin, and I've written a bunch of papers with him, founded with him a nonprofit called the Radical Exchange Foundation that has become one of the leading think tanks in the Web3 space. And um, have, for the last few years, been working with him and Audrey Tong and other leaders in what I would describe as kind of the democratically inclined part of the Web3 space um, to try to sketch out what these technologies will empower us to do in terms of reimagining how democracy and, and the economy work. That's very exciting. So it sounds like um, the, the paper that you guys recently released has probably been churning around in the think tank for a long while. This is this is something you guys have been thinking about for a long time. This isn't just something that emerged um more recently, I would imagine. Well, it's kind of an interesting mix. We've been thinking about this kind of direction and and uh, broadly uh, how to make those things work for a while. But when I saw Vitalik's paper in January about Soulbound tokens and started having conversations with people in the Gitcoin community, I started to really see how the Web3 substrate could enable it. Um, and that's what led to this paper. Amazing. Um, we have a lot to unpack when it comes to DSOC, when it comes to decentralized society. And I think SBTs are sort of the first thing that are, are starting soul to pull people. Let's, let's just yeah, soul uh, tokens. make sure people know what, know what SBT stands for. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and DSOC being de decentralized society, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, and right. when it comes, when it comes to the soul bound tokens, the, the SBTs, they're, they're kind of the first, Peace are the first uh, carrot that leads the rabbit down the rabbit hole. And, and I found in my own thinking, um, the further you go down the rabbit hole, the, the more interesting it becomes. So I, I want to make sure that we unpack as many things today as we can in, in the paper you guys have been uh, that you guys wrote and published recently and um, try to get as deep down that as possible. Um, That's great, there's, Jeremy. 
there's a quote I read recently from you on your Twitter. Um, I think your, your sister posted it. And I think it's a great way to sort of frame some of this discussion. And, and when I read it, I thought it was just absolutely perfect. And it's uh, progress is created on the edge of disaster. And that really resonated with me because when it comes to soulbound tokens and DSOC, I think people are drawn to them, but I also think they're scared by them as well. But it's sort of on this bleeding edge where things could go one way or another that this innovation does happen. Um, I, I don't know if you wanted to add on to that, but I think it's an, it's an excellent uh, quote to, to kick things off with. Well, I mean, that's, that's one aspect of, of what I meant there. And another aspect is that you know, many people, I think, are very scared about this moment in the world. They're concerned about um, all kinds of potential catastrophes, uh, whether it be AI risk, whether it be the geopolitical situation, whether it be rise of populism. And uh, that's very frightening. And at the same time, I don't think that anything other than that would have broke the sort of sense of stasis that we've had for really 40 or 50 years in terms of the evolution of our social institutions. And uh, I'm seeing all sorts of people who previously were very uh, stuck, whether wherever they were on the political spectrum, to a very narrow way of conceptualizing of our future. And now they're starting to loosen that and imagine much broader possibilities because precisely of this dangerous moment that we're in. Yeah, that's that's why I really look forward to these conversations as well, Glenn, is because it's... Um unpacking these ideas that are starting to emerge in the zeitgeist, right, to to make sure that people get the broadest um, viewpoints and, and really understand them so they can kind of make their own decisions and hopefully be inspired by them as well. Um, if if your guys' paper on DSOC did anything, I hope it planted a lot of seeds in a lot of really brilliant people's minds that allow them to begin building upon this in, in sort of a positive way um, rather than a negative way and, and trying to push that in, in a certain direction rather than letting its roots grow in, in the opposite direction. So that's that's um, why I'm just super excited to have this conversation. But maybe... I mean, look, one, one thing broadly that I, I found in, in the work that I do is that I think... Um, there's a certain set of things that's sort of easy to describe technically and that a lot of people from technical communities pursue, but that has values that are not going to point us in the right direction. And then there's other things that are aligned with the values of like broader society, but that are sort of harder to make technically feasible. And I try to bridge the gap between those as much as possible and bring a broader community of people with those kind of aligned values into the space of developing these technologies. And I hope that this will be a contribution to that. Yeah, it is a very bottoms up approach, isn't it? Like it, it's uh, it doesn't just happen overnight. It, it's it's uh, a lot of bootstrapping and a lot of grassroots and a lot of uh, breaking things before experimentation. That. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so maybe a good place to start would be with the Soulbound token itself, Glenn. Maybe we should break that down at a high level first. And I would also love to to hear about some of the inspiration or some of the initial things that might have spurned your guys's uh, thinking around SBTs, like what some of the catalysts were. So maybe if we, we define and break down SBTs first, we could uh, begin our journey down the rabbit hole, so to say. Yeah, so um, SB, defining an SBT is both uh, a beginning and also one of the most challenging parts of the whole exercise because the simplest way to think about a soulbound token is a non-transferable NFT. So, and an NFT that's stuck to a particular wallet. 
But um, that actually is not quite the right way to think about it. Because uh, what we actually imagine is not that literally it's attached to a particular address forever, but instead that it can't be transferred unilaterally by the key holder of that address to someone else. That it requires some sort of a process, recovery process, in order to transfer it. Um, because, of course, people might lose their wallet, their wallet might be stolen. You don't actually want it to be stuck forever to a particular address. People need to rotate their keys for a variety of reasons. And so ultimately what we actually advocate for is getting towards a state where there's a social process of transfer um, rather than an individual process of transfer, but it is potentially uh, transferable. And there's a bunch of different ways to bootstrap there and a simply non-transferable token, it might be a good place to start, but it's not actually sort of the the real meaning of what we're aiming for with soulbound tokens. I would I would love to circle back to the recovery side of things a little bit later on in the conversation because I thought that was Excellent. particularly interesting in your guys's paper that you wrote. But I, I would I'd be curious to know um, the thinking behind why this thing needs to be non-transferable. I think kind of understanding that is is um, something that's key to understand here. So why why can't these things be transferred? What what gives what 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 does non-transferability add to the token? Well, so transfer. You know, when you have transfers. Um, everything is basically some sort of a monetized financial asset. And of course, that was the starting point of the Web3 space with Bitcoin, where things were currency. And then the next step is, well, what are other transferable things that are not currencies? That leads to NFTs. But um, the reality is that financial value is built on top of social value. So like, what are the most financially valuable things out there? Houses, corporations, uh, let's just take those two examples. Both of those are financial assets with fun fundamentally non-financial things that create that financial value. So houses value comes from the city and the relationships within the city that make that house valuable. I mean, of course, some of it is just the physical assets, but most of it comes from the social context in which they live. And, um, Housing, most housing is rented, uh, not owned. And rentals are not transferable agreements. If, if someone rents something to me, I can't just re-rent it to someone else without permission. Right. right. So, uh, and then you think about corporations. Corporation shares are transferable, but the assets of the corporations themselves are not primarily saleable assets. They're primarily a bunch of human capital relationships, brand connections that people have, all of which are not fully transferable assets. So there's this sort of fundamental gap in the Web3 space that if you make everything transferable, you ultimately undermine the very foundations on which the value rests. So only by having access to this, these non-transferable relational features can you then build on top of them in a sustainable way the financial value that Web3? And so this is the reason why Web3 has been so sort of parasitic in many ways on Web2 foundations, why, why, why there's you know, so much of this sort of centralized infrastructure that lies behind the financial values that go into the Web3 ecosystem. And if, if you're able to give those a decentralized foundation, then the system becomes 
much more self-contained. Yeah. I think uh, the way I initially thought about it um, in the early days as well was we kind of only do have financial instruments in Web3, right? We have DeFi, we have NFTs, all these things are transferable. And purely financialized instruments don't make for the best incentive structures. They don't make for robust social community building. They, you're effectively building with half of a toolkit. And we don't really have social tools at the moment. Um, and I think, you know, early on, my my first thesis that I began developing was, you know, the tokenization of activity and behavior makes a lot more things valuable, right? And if if I, and this is probably a bad example, but, you know, if I'm one of the best players in Call of Duty or one of the best players in Axie or whatever the case may be, that needs to be associated to myself. I can't sell that skill, right? I can't sell that achievement. I can't sell that quest. Um, and that that thing that you cannot sell becomes immensely valuable because then it slowly become, becomes a part of you, right? Um, yeah. Now, th- th- that might be a, 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 an oversimplified way, but like when it comes to the example you used earlier with like the house, you know, for me to know if you, Glenn, are a good renter, there's a lot of social things I need to know about you to like make a determination whether or not I trust you, right? Well, I think the thing that's most simplified about the example you gave is that that's a case that really feels like a individual trait. But actually, I think the most interesting applications here come from the social nature of people's um, reputational characteristics. It comes from their membership of different groups and, and the role that they play within those different groups. Uh, give it, taking the example of games again, you know, guild participation. It's not just individual achievements, but but the, you know, role you play within social groups. And that aspect, I think, is one of the most important things. Now, of course, the in, more individual elements are, are also important and representable in this way, but it's those social uh, relations that I think are the allow for the most exciting applications. Just just to build upon that guild example a little bit more, like would those be things like if I am a guild member and I'm particularly good at um, content creation, so I might um, be able to create content for the the guild that helps promote them, or if I am a good gamer, or maybe I'm really good at uh, being a talent scout for the esports organization. Like I guess these SBTs allow you to identify those members over time and then build other structures on top of those social groups. Yeah. And those might be these sort of, in some sense, transferable skills, not transferable across people, but transferable across social contexts, but they're also the social affiliations. And so both of those things can be represented by SBTs and both are relevant uh, and both play roles in the DSOC world. So there's both the sort of traits of the individual decontextualized from the organization, but also the traits of the individual that are about their connection to the organization. Right. Now we could go a couple different ways here, but maybe this would be a good time to kind of tie in the idea of a soul, because if you are one of those guild members, for example, or you're that renter um, in that house example, I guess, where are these SPTs coming from? So my uh, hope is that we get to a point where what they are tied to is a recovery process rather than a address within a given ecosystem. And that recovery process uh, is the thing that, that's actually the ultimate root of, of, of your identity. So your identity ultimately 
is founded in some socially based uh, process of regenerating uh, your keys rather than in some fixed set of keys that you hold. Right. Um, but I guess where do you, like, if, if I am one of those guild members, I guess, is it a, a fellow guild member that is issuing me that sort of SBT uh, or, or like yeah, where so, would the actual verific, like the actual token come from? Like who's yeah, issuing? Yeah. So things? the, the tokens would be issued by peers. Um, okay. but those peers might be, uh, somewhat, you know, larger social groups. So, it could be a university, it could be a DAO, it could, but it could also just be another individual. Just the same way that with NFTs, they're sometimes issued by some sort of a DAO, they're sometimes issued by a famous artist, they're sometimes issued by, a, um, you know, some kind of a group with some group reputation that's not a full DAO, etc. Gotcha. So I guess in our two examples we've been playing around with, if I was the renter and I had somebody who was a good rentee, I could issue like an SBT to that person who rented from me saying they paid their deposit. They were fantastic tenants. And then that renter could potentially take that on to their next rental. Or if, if I was the guild, I might be sending SBTs to my guild members to identify sure. their different actions within my ecosystem or within or my even when you're context. renting to someone first, just, just the contract that you sign with them mm, that's a good point. could be uh, like, you have access to this. So like, imagine you want to give access to a particular apartment. It's got a digital, you know, it's got like a QR reader and that, and the root of that QR could be an SBT, uh, that, uh, that says this person is allowed to enter this. Right. And this, this is where, um, I guess I'm curious to see how these things are, are built from the bottom up because I guess, I'm I'm curious to see how many different entities begin issuing SBTs. Like if every guild is issuing their own SBTs, then I guess my curiosity and concern is, is there a standard here or how these things become standardized? Or if that just depends on who is accepting what SBTs, like I, 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 I have a hard time seeing how this, um, get standardized if that makes sense i don't know if you have any thoughts there or maybe yeah. that's just too far in the future to know i think that um standardization is like very much a circular process with innovation so if you too religiously tie to a particular standard that you've determined ex ante everything is constrained to conform to that standard and it cuts off a lot of innovation on the other hand if you uh if you just allow you know, if people just go off and do whatever they're doing and there's no attempt to standardize things, then environments get fragmented and there becomes a lot of rent extraction and, and lack of portability and so forth. So I think that these things have to have sort of a dialectic relationship to each other where there's experiments happening, but experiments that have the ambition of communicating with eventual standardization. Right now, the most prominent standard related to this stuff is the um, decentralized identity verifiable credential standard. And I think there's a lot of great things about that. There's also a lot of the key functionality that we're interested in DSOC doesn't really interoperate well with that particular standard. So um, on the one hand, I think it's a great standard and I think we should be using it in lots of applications. And on the other hand, uh, I don't think we should only focus on applications that conform to that standard. 
um, and we're going to need to experiment with other things and have an eye towards, as we see patterns emerging of use, forming standards and trying to get everyone to go along with this. So, yeah, I think that's a, a brilliant answer. And I think what really excites me about what some of some of what you were saying was seeing that experimentation happen, right? Because once these SPTs begin getting issued, like you'll be able to do really cool experiments with them, right? Because as like one one of the ways I look at SBTs is I look at them as access tokens, right? But I also look at NFTs as access tokens and economic tokens. Like we traditionally think about tokens as access tokens. So for me, like yeah. interesting experimentation begins to occur when we think about things of value and how we can gate those things of value and what access tokens we require to permissionlessly and trustlessly interact with those things of value. So if I am starting a, a new guild or a new game, the question for my experiment becomes, who do I want to permissionlessly and trustlessly allow into my community? And th these could be, this could be me curating for my people or the people I want to target. And then, you know, how that community grows and what sort of hierarchies or tiers or levels begin to grow into those things. And, you know, with this experimentation, you know, as we see happen so often, the community is just going to come up with things that we would have never imagined and, and seeing how that sort of uh, tree grows, I guess, to put it one way is something that really excites yeah. me. Well, let's, let's talk about the issue of access. Um, I, I think that uh, the simplest version of an NFT is, is private property and private property has like you own this thing and private property is three elements. One is called uses, which is basically access, like access to some object. Second is what's called abuses, which is roughly the right to change it or to do something that could alter the experience for other people who access that thing. And a third element is what's called fructus, which is to get like the financial returns that come up with those things. And in many real world circumstances, those three things are decoupled and each one of them is important. And I think what SPTs are gonna let us do is decouple those three things. And yes, access will be one element, but there'll be many others as well. So let me give you some examples. Um, first, let me just give a real world example. Think about a corporation. The way that things typically work if you're an employee of a corporation is you get access to quite a lot of facilities. You get a, some very limited rights to like change things, often with consent from other people. And then uh, you get some limited share of the financial benefits that come out of it. So in, in sharp contrast to the way that private property works, a typical corporate employee has these weird mixture of those three different types of rights, right? And we can imagine even more creative ways of doing that in, in a Web3 ecosystem. So you talked about access and, and we could go into that more and so forth, but let me focus on the other two. One is rights to change things. There, we might want to try some interesting different types of schemes. So one of those is something I've proposed called the Harburger tax or the Salsa tokens. These are tokens where um, the owner uh, sets a price for the token, but has to pay a tax on that price and anyone, say anyone within a community, can buy it from them at that price. So, okay, so you start thinking about that. You're now saying people who are within a community have the right to buy this in a way that they can then do whatever they want with it afterwards. So you have to issue certain people these rights to purchase at the price. And that requires 
giving out some kind of a soulbound token to those people. Interesting. Or you could give people financial rights uh, to the profits generated by something or, you know, et cetera. But you might not want those people to be able to sell those immediately. You might want them to be vesting. Yeah. You might, that could be true for a token. That could be true for a share, et cetera. Um, so, and that's not going to work unless you have non-transferability. If you can sell those claims, then they're not vesting. So that just starts to give you a sense of the way in which soulbound tokens can decompose the bundle of things that usually go into a standard transferable NFT and allow us to play with them, including access, but including all these other things as well. That's very, very interesting. So you're identifying people who have the right to purchase. And maybe if you're a corporation, would some of those things be like right to purchase like stock or like, I guess, like even like space within a building? Yeah, that, that's a great example, Jeremy. Like that's a the, the, the right to purchase stock, even if you don't go to my Harbinger token, just writing an option. Right. Right. Um, now, options can be transferable, but often they're not transferable. They're vesting options, right? You know, they they belong to a particular person. You would kind of give some people the right to purchase, but not necessarily everyone. You don't, you don't want someone to just be able to sell that option for you. Right. But you could, yeah, no, that's really interesting to see how you could begin, like, breaking down the different layers there. But you could still be an employee within that corporation or have, like, a space in that office, depending on a different SBT that gives you those rights, right? Exactly. Um, no, that's really, really great distinctions. And and then, then the fun part becomes thinking once again, how do we begin building these things into Web3, which is trickier, <laughs> needless to say, because it is very grassroots from the bottom up. But um, that is that is the future, um, hopefully, right? I mean, another, another direction that you can take all this stuff in terms of the rights of abuses, the right to control something, is that SBTs don't need to give that just to one person. They can give voting rights to that person. And together, collectively, you know, in the simplest form via multi-sig, but in richer forms using quadratic voting or yeah. majority voting or whatever you want to do, those SBTs can represent the right to vote on some decision about or disposition of some asset. Yeah, the, the way I, I think about that side of things as well is... It's not that I have an issue with governance tokens. It's just I think governance tokens are very limited and they're not always used in the correct way. I think governance is just uh, a function, one of the many functions that happens within an ecosystem or within a community or whatever the case may be. So the question of my mind becomes what is like a proof of governor or what grants you the right to govern? right within a community or within the ecosystem and how do we identify who is that governor so to say you know so like what sbts would we be looking for maybe alongside other tokens or nfts they might have that prove hey this guy knows what he's talking about he's gone through x y and z and we have identified him as you know a governor or something like that well well to give an example like that think about you know in some future evolution where productivity software integrates tokens, um, you would represent membership of, you know, Slack groups or, you know, channels within Slack or whatever substrate you're talking about. Teams is my, uh, you know, at Microsoft where I work, uh, what we use. You could identify those by holding certain SPTs. Right. And um, that gives you the right to post to a channel, right? And often governance happens by people speaking. 
and persuading others, not just by voting on some final issue. So yes, voting is one component of it, but but speech is another component of it. And uh, summaries of elements of that speech, like if you become someone that people really want to hear, that a lot of people are reacting positively, that could be then represented by an SPT, and you could gradually attain this position of governance through mm. speech acts that were themselves gated by you having an SPT to participate in that conversation. So anyways, you, you see how this becomes a whole ecosystem in which governance is a right, but it's also a dynamic right that evolves in combination with other richer forms of communication. I've never thought about that. That's so interesting. So like, I guess, like, correct me if I'm wrong here. Let's say you and I, Glenn, are in that channel and we're having a debate over a governance proposal or something. And, you know, I convince you of why I think this should be voted yes. And you think I made a compelling argument. Then you, as, you know, another soul within this ecosystem could go like, right on, Jeremy, that was a compelling argument. Here's like, you know, like a SBT ticket saying you convinced me or like this was like, um, like it validates my or rating skills or my debate skills or something like that and yeah. building up things and, and, like and, you know and even more fluidly like you can kind of break down the whole notion of say electing a leader into a more granular parts so like you a lot of people talk about breaking down degrees into badges you could also think breaking down office holding into you know the outcomes of particular discussions or debates right so like rather than having a zero one you either get elected to this office or you don't it could be that we have, you know, there's a series of things I participate in. And if I, uh, if I'm giving compelling things in that, you know, people could be quadratic voting up or down my performance there. And that could, and then I could get a badge based on that, which would not be like, you're now king for life, but rather like, yeah, that's, that's a merit. You know, that's like a, that's a sign that you're at least partly a leader in this community, but that could be much more granular just in the way that you break down a degree into these granular components. And it could be issued by an individual, but it could also be issued by a quadratic voting process in the DAO, which is not to elect a leader, but rather to give someone cred for being uh, effective on a particular issue. You know, this, this may be like a really smooth brain way or not an elegant way to, to maybe explain what I'm thinking, but it seems like DSOC and SBTs are internet native or web3 native but let's call them internet native tools to help make governance and like like democracy more robust because these tools are needed in a bigger society where things are a lot more complicated like we we aren't we we need a different system than the greeks used because that was a totally different world with totally different um social interactions and and record keeping and communication so it sounds like these are sort of native internet governing tools. Maybe that's a really well, bad way, way to put it, but I don't know. Well, the way I think about it is like, think about what word processing and before it, the printing press did to writing. Yeah. They made it much easier to experiment with things right. before you produce them for a broader audience. And as a result, they democratized the process of writing. And, and, you know, the internet took that another level, right? So, like, there's all these different levels of sort of making it easier to run small experiments, to make things more granular, and still allow them to scale at the same time. Not making this path from experimentation to scale so rigid. 
Um, that's really what all those things did, right? And that did it for, you know, just saying something. And this is doing that for governance. It's, it's allowing us to break down the components of property and governance in, in a much more, a way that allows for a much more fluid process of getting from experimentation to scale, you know? And uh, that's something that we need if we want to have it not take like 200 years to form a new country and have a census so that then you can vote and whatever, you know what I mean? If you want to yeah. be able to spin up in these new dynamic social circumstances, new forms of governance, new forms of these interactions, we need a way that just like word processing did for, um, you know, speaking, we can do for governing. That is a really good way to put it. And I've never thought of it like that. I, I do want to slightly shift gears here, Glenn, because we still have a lot to cover. Um, and yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I would love to quickly touch upon, um, I guess you could call it a hype word. There's a lot of hype words here, like the metaverse, um, governing kind of. Uh, there's one other one I'd like to quickly touch upon to see if you have any thoughts on it. And it's something that I, I hope SBTs might be able to help unlock a little bit more. And that is uh, the creator economy, right? Um, so my like high level thought here and would love to hear your thoughts as well is, you know, SPTs help once again, mark creators and what creators may be good at. And it allows them to build out that reputation as a creator by issuing good pieces of art or collaborating on other community pieces of art and by seeding sort of like the creator ecosystem with these sort of, uh, SBTs or certificates or whatever the case may be, then you allow the creator economy to begin to emerge in some sort of way. And, and I think at the heart of that, it might be just by identifying what people are good at on the internet, to put it very, very simply. But I'd love to, to hear if you have any thoughts on, on that. Well, I think there's a whole bunch of different roles. So like one, one role is, yeah, credentialing, like you're describing, and that's absolutely a, a relevant role. Another role is commitments to scarcity. So um, right now, you know, we can trade NFTs on Web3, but the actual scarcity value of the thing that's being traded almost always comes from some sort of a press release on OpenSea or on Twitter or you know, mm. on a web, basically centralized Web2 style platform, right? And uh, that's because we have no direct way to issue a statement that commits to something being scarce. Um, native to Web3. But th that's something that's very much empowered by this type of tokens. Um, because you could, when you issue, say, a limited edition NFT, um, put an SBT into your wallet that's linked to those that says, I'm not ever going to do something that's you know within this vicinity of similarity to these other ones. Uh, you know, again, for some period of time or whatever, you know, whatever it is you want to make a commitment about on them. Interesting. And, and that becomes very important to creating, to solving basically the double spend problem, but for creators rather than for issuers of currency. You know what I mean? That's uh, so I'm once again, I'm going to give a bad example here <laughs> yeah. and, and let me know yeah. if I'm like sort of on the mark here. So yeah. let's take, um, and apologies for this example, take board API club. Okay. Yeah. Let's say you, uh, and if, I know it wasn't Yuga Lab at the time, but let's say Yuga Labs created the 10,000 board apes, 
And they issued an SPT saying, we are not going to generate another 10,000 PFP project within our IP for the next three years. So you know that for the next three years, those board apes are going to be the only PFP within that ecosystem, which when it comes to games and gamification, it's actually super interesting because it just unlocks a ton of different tools for gamification. But that as like, as a collector that guarantees that for the next three years, like this is a scarce item. Is, is that kind of the exactly. right way to be thinking yeah, about it? Precisely. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and without, I mean, of course people are doing that already. They issue press releases or whatever, but they're doing it on web two platforms. The, right. the, the, the real, I mean, this is another illustration of the fact that the, true underlying value of the stuff that's traded in web three always has a web two foundation. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's it, it, the actual scarcity that then people can exchange comes on a web two platform, but this allows us the opportunity to put it natively to web three. So that, I think that's critical, critical for the, you know, creator economy, but I can give you a bunch of other examples of different types of uses. So another use is um, a lot of in the, in the real world, you don't give up all rights to your works when you sell a version of them. Mm-hmm. Some works are retained by the author, like the right not to be defamed or the right, you know, like th- those rights are soul bound, but they're not representable in Web3 right now. You know, the minute you've admitted that FT- NFT belongs completely to someone else, um, you might, but, but you might want to bind to your soul additional rights. See what I mean? Yeah. And that uh, would be allowed here. And in fact, Jaron Lanier, someone I work with a lot, with the, he's like the father of virtual reality, believes that almost all of the creator economy should operate in that way. Where actually you're always just kind of renting things to people. You're never finally selling them. That the rights always revert to the original creator in some way because it's a part of their personality. And yes, they get economic flows off of but they are, they're flows that are more of a sort of rental licensing form than they are of a pure transfer form, right? And that uh, requires SPT-style functionality. Another, does that make sense? It makes total sense. I just think it's really beautiful. That's why I'm like just looking yeah. off into the distance here because it gives yeah. everything way more weight and significance. And it's, it's just, not to sound cheesy about it, but it's just more beautiful, you know? Yeah, I hope so. Another uh, example like this that Jaron talks about a lot is what he calls value chains. So think about open source software. What you Your social capital in open source software is the role that you've played as a contributor or a, a maintainer of an open source software project, right? Those are naturally SBTs uh, because they belong to you as a person. But in a future, I hope a future we get to, where people are able to earn returns off of open source software, where they're not purely charitable, where uh, either through like source cred, I don't know if you know that uh, protocol labs uh, idea or Gitcoin or future evolutions of those things. There's a guy at protocol labs who's developing a really cool thing uh, that he calls plural markets, which uses a lot of radical exchange ideas. Uh, for, but all these are ways to like bring money into the open source ecosystem. But still, ultimately, it's not like that money's coming in and you're selling your right as a contributor or your right as a maintainer. You you are the maintainer and the contributor. And then rights flow to you because of that, not you just sell it off, right? So, so then there can become a whole hierarchy of things where projects build on top of projects, build on top of projects, and you get some eventual revenue because yeah. of the role that you played in some project that played a role in another project that played a role. You see what I mean? So it's like, yeah. it's a yeah. whole 
value chain ecosystem built on top of these underlying roles that people played, which are not saleable. They're, they're, they're parts of who they are. So it's like uh, the intermingling of souls. And in that intermingling, you're um, maintaining those connections as uh, you go out and do something else. And, and you were sort of inspired or influenced or a part of that like social fabric. Um, exactly. Yeah, no, that's that's really cool. Um, and that's that's what I think is just exciting in going down this SPT rabbit hole is as or this DSOC rabbit hole is the more you think about it and the more you give like great examples like this the more we could begin to imagine how we build these real world structures inside of the metaverse. And when I say the metaverse, I mean the metaverse and not some virtual world in a video game. Right. Yeah. Um, Cause there's a huge difference there. Um, I do want to touch upon souls just to make sure we've defined that. So uh, like a, so a soul could be, I could be a soul. You could be a soul. That corporation could be a soul, um, and can anything? I might be a have soul? multiple. I might have multiple souls myself. Like I could have multiple uh, contextual souls. Mm -hmm. So souls are these objects that are persistent collections of connections right. and properties, but they can represent inanimate things. They can represent animate things. They can represent aspects of animate things. They could even represent aspects of inanimate things. So they're not simply um, identified with like some flesh and blood, you know, yes. human. It's a much more general concept than that. Would it be correct to think, or maybe a correct way to think about this would be, I, Jeremy, aggregates to my wallet or whatever the container is, different NFTs, economic tokens, and SBTs. And then I could spin up a soul that displays some of those things that are aggregated to me, right? And that becomes my my soul for maybe a game. Or I could spin up a soul for maybe DeFi. Or like yeah. maybe like you could call them like personalities or personas or different identities. W would that be a correct way of thinking about that? Or um, Absolutely. And of course there will be an incentive to want to aggregate those together because the more properties you can show, the more credible you are. But of course, there are reasons that you want to disaggregate them to maintain contextual separation. And so there will be, have to be some kind of equilibrium between those where people have you know, several of these, but not you know, an enormously large number. Gotcha. Gotcha. Because if you, yeah, if you had an enormously large number, then I could just spin up the same soul over and over and over again and potentially... And civil attack, right? Throw governance. And, and the reason why, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And the reason people won't let you do that is that they want to see a pattern of affiliations and connections and credibility that you have before they give you a governance token. So uh, you'll want to aggregate your souls in order to be eligible, but also disaggregate in order to keep context separate. Right. Um, maybe this would be a good time to touch upon some of the concerns that I get from people when talking about this idea or discussing this idea because usually it's about at this point in the conversation when you're when you're kind of leading somebody down that rabbit hole and they say like well this sounds like some black mirror episode like uh, this is sounds like a more sinister version of you know the data harvesting we've built in web 2 um, this this sounds like the chinese social system and those are fair knee-jerk reactions absolutely but how do we protect and prevent against some of that? Or 
why are those maybe not the correct way to be viewing DSOC or souls or SPTs? That's a, that's a big question. Well, look, look, so first of all, there, there are lots of ways in which this technology can be abused and turned to, you know, awful purposes. All, I think there's, there's two usual positions in tech. One is that like some tech is good and other tech is bad. And I think that's wrong uh, because all tech is multi-use. And uh, on the other hand, other people say tech is neutral. It just depends how you use it. And I think that's wrong as well. Tech enables certain things. It doesn't enable other things. And so tech can, does have a bias towards it. And I think soulbound tokens enable a lot of different things, some of which are really dystopian and some of which are utopian. I think the strongest case to be made for this framework is that it has a, some good possibilities that it enables, whereas I believe that the current trajectory of Web3 without this is sort of inevitably going in sort of this extreme anarcho-capitalist direction, which would be really damaging. Um, and the current trajectory of you know, the AI world is inevitably going in this direction of hypercentralization. And so this opens up new possibilities, some of which are really dangerous and some of which are exciting. Um, but I don't think there's ultimately any way to escape the responsibility at every juncture to steer things in the right direction and away from the worst possibilities. So when you have, you know nothing about people when they're just financial objects, holding financial objects, there's no way to be racist. There's no way to be, um, you know, hateful, really. All there is is numbers. There's no people. And so you could say, like, isn't it better to be in that world so that we don't allow racism? Like, isn't it better to just be a robot so that we don't have to deal with all the messiness of human emotions? Uh, and I think that that's, that's, that's a mistake. You know, I think if we limit ourselves to that, we strip away everything that makes human life beautiful. We also strip away hate and yeah. violence in a lot of ways. And, you know, so uh, SBTs will bring in much more of that human and social richness with all of its dark and with all of its beautiful sides. I love that answer. And and that is the edge of disaster, isn't it? Um, where that creativity yeah. and where that progress is being birthed, right? There's going to be bad stuff. There's going to be good stuff. That's the yin and the yang, sir. Like, that's what it is, right? It's yeah. this balance and hopefully we do something good with it. Um, so I I um, I think a couple like small things, though, that you talk about in DSOC that could like help prevent some of this. And I know are some concerns um, are, you know, even something as simple as revoking an SBT, right? I know a lot of people say like, well, how do I know somebody just can't drop me an SBT? And then it's tied to my soul and that can be malicious or blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, by simply being able to revoke SBTs. Is, well, is that, I, I, I think well, we have, I, I have to be a little careful sure there. I don't think revocation does it on its own because it's the issuer that can revoke. And as a result, like the malicious SPTs aren't really solved by that. But I think that okay. the key there is we have to have a really clear distinction between minted and sent objects. And that, that's on the data layer, right. the interpretation right. layer. It doesn't happen on the right. like fundamental tech layer. Um, but, you know, you think about emails uh, you know, you, you could spam people's emails, but people don't have to read them. Um, and you can reply to someone's Twitter thread, right? But that doesn't mean that that person endorsed what you said. So that you have to have a right. really clear way of understanding the difference between things that represent consent and commitments of a relevant party and things that are just 
being thrown out into the void, so to speak. You know, and right. both have their so role, what, what both have their uh, value. You like, wouldn't want to allow only one of those things. You know, you you want you want like both. It is important that people without your consent can say things about you. Like you want people to be able to say like Harvey Weinstein is a slide ball, right? But you don't want that to be interpreted the same way as Harvey Weinstein saying, I am a slide ball. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's funny that you use Harvey Weinstein, actually, because I was thinking about, <laughs> this is going to sound so weird. I was thinking about the Weinstein company as an example for SBTs. And it actually made me wonder, it's like, what if I was an employee at the Weinstein company and I had built up a lot of my like social credibility and reputation based upon working at the Weinstein company and that company took a huge hit because of one man. And then it made me think about like, well then would that like tarnish my own reputation through association? I know these are real world things that we, we have to deal with. Like if you were an employee there, but, um, it, it was just those kind of implications I hadn't actually thought about before. Um, it, interesting to think through anyways. Um, well, I mean, it's not clear whether it should or it shouldn't. I mean, um, like you, you were there, you didn't take action to prevent things. People will draw some inferences based on that. Probably people shouldn't draw too strong inferences based on that. Um, and extreme guilt by association is overdone, but it's not like we don't want any guilt by association either, you know, like otherwise people have no responsibility to ensure that they prevent bad behavior by those around them. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, we are just running out of time, Glenn. So there's just a couple of quick yeah. things I want to touch upon. And again, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on here, sir. This has been a, a brilliant conversation and, and I really do appreciate it. Um, so one thing I do want to make sure we talk about before we wrap things up is that recovery that we've kind of been dancing around throughout the conversation. So, you know, you, you did mention that there are different recovery tools um, that could be used to help recover oh, keys yeah. great, or great transfer question. keys. Absolutely. Yeah, I would, I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit more. So, so yeah. like there, there are two extreme versions of uh, custodian, you know, of, of recovery now. One is a custodial relationship with Binance or Coinbase. Uh, but then it's like, what what's the value of decentralization there exactly, right? So there's, it, it becomes a very centralized relationship. On the other hand, there's MetaMask, where you have, uh, you know, control over your keys, but you could get kidnapped and someone could be, you know, force you to give them your keys. You can get hacked. There's all kinds of risks associated with it, or you could just forget your, your, your keys. So um, to move past those two extremes, uh, one of the most exciting things that's happened thus far is social recovery, which they use in Argent, Wallet, Loopring, other, other, uh, good wallets and and there you can recover your keys by um, appointing a set of guardians other wallets a quorum of which can regenerate your keys right um, and you could of course also like require say a quorum of that to multi-sig too many transfers out of your wallet or too large transfers etc to protect against a thief quickly trying to loot you right um, now the problem with that, even though I think that's a very good direction, is that you have to really keep relationships with all those people, keep up to date who they are, make sure that if their wallets change, et cetera. So something that might be more powerful than that is what we call community recovery, where the set of relationships that are encoded in the SBTs that you choose to hold become a substrate for automatically appointing a set of guardians. 
that keep up to date with your social relationships. So if you have this evolving set of SBTs that represent, now I'm working here, now I'm part of this DAO, now, it's, now I'm attending this conference, that would then be a set of a pool to choose from for your guardians that could be auto-appointed by a protocol. And they could be auto-appointed in really clever ways. So for example, they could diversify to the maximum extent. So, you know, I might, I'm, I'm an economist. I might want one economist on there. I might want one um, person from my high school. I might want one person for my personal life, one person for my religious life, et cetera. And that could maintain a diversity so that there's no way for them to collude except through you, right? So it, it provides security through diversity. Um, there's lots to be worked out in that paradigm, of course, but I think it's a really compelling direction to go in. Um, so I do want to make sure I understand the social recovery part correctly, though. Absolutely. So, or, or it seems like there's a lot of different uh, things that could be going on there. So, would that mean, like, let's say somebody that could be a guardian from Delphi Digital, and that could be like, what role did Jeremy have at Delphi, and like, what were some portfolio companies he was working on? And then maybe from my high school, like you were saying, it's like, what was Jeremy's nickname in high school? And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, until you have a circle of guardians around you that you don't necessarily have to keep up with because that's difficult um, socially and with the sort of mental overhead that requires. Um, so is that what that sort of social recovery might look like? Or is, is that the wrong way to well, so, so social recovery is that you designate a bunch of specific wallets. But you, know, you need to update them if they change their keys. You need to make sure you still have the relationship. There's a bunch of issues with that. The idea of Community recovery is that you've got a series of SPTs representing social relationships that you hold uh, with people, with organizations, et cetera. And that some sort of a AI or automatic protocol would appoint a diverse set of people in an automatic and dynamic way that if you need to recover, it would then you know, choose some selection of and ask you to uh, contact those the people who issued or who also hold those SBTs and get them to recover your wallet. So it's a social recovery, but a social recovery that dynamically and gotcha. just in time adjusts to the set of social relationships you currently have. That's very cool. So essentially that would mean like the, the program or the algorithm would recognize that I work at Delphi, that I went to this high school, that I'm a part of this D and D group. Right. And I play these like five games and then it could say, okay, you need to talk to, you know, one of your colleagues from Delphi, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, um, give me sort of exactly. like the prompt on who to, uh, who to appoint rather than having to keep up with this, um, social overhead, so to say, and constantly like making sure like, oh crap, I just split up with my wife who was one of my guardians. And now I have to go, you know, like it just makes the exactly. the recovery process a lot more fluid and easy, especially if it's in an emergency, right? And, and more secure as well, because, right. you know, you can't really expect people to be constantly changing all those things, you know, just to update the protocol, right? Absolutely. No, that's, uh, I think that's a big takeaway, and I hope uh, if there's any devs that are listening into this, start uh, writing some code, guys, because that uh, <laughs> that's very important there. But Glenn, um, we have run out of time, unfortunately, my friend. But I do really appreciate you coming on and taking the time to help break this down. Uh, there's still so many rabbit holes we could dive down, but I think this is a good a good foundation to lay to, you know, spark people's curiosity if they haven't 
become as well versed with these SBTs, these soul bound tokens and decentralized society, or hopefully has have pushed somebody a little bit further down the rabbit hole. So really appreciate your time today, Glenn. And um, thanks so much, Jeremy. My pleasure. All right. Well, we'll uh, wrap it up there and uh, have a great day, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. Cheers. Hey, it's Tom. Our team at Delphi Media just launched a new show, NFT Collector, where two guests go head-to-head to each build a $50,000 NFT portfolio in short 10-minute episodes. They leak alpha all along the way, so click the link in the show notes and subscribe to NFT Collector on YouTube. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Delphi Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on your podcast app, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter or LinkedIn. Stay tuned for our next episode. Out soon.